What determines success in a particular endeavour? You know, a few years ago, I played rugby for a team in Western Sydney, and most of the forwards, most of the big boys on the team were Islanders, and most of the backs were white boys. Now, if you wanted to be a forward and you were white, you could do it, but you needed certain prerequisites. You needed to have a big physique. You needed to have the drive to be a forward and all of these things. Why didn't they have big physiques? Was it because they were white? Maybe but maybe they just shouldn't do so much meth. Welcome back, everyone. There is a massive movement at the moment. There's a massive push for people to be reading more works from people of color, more black authors. And I actually think this is a great thing. There are all sorts of lists popping up all over the internet, but my favorite black author isn't on them. So today we're going to go through one of his latest non-fiction works in detail and you'll soon realise why he's being ignored. So stick around. Today we're talking about the book Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell, one of the most underrated economists of our generation. It's a relatively short read, it's like 120 pages, but because there were so many amazing moments, it actually took me a long time to get through it. I, I felt like I was auditioning to play Owen Wilson in one of his movies because every page I was just like, wow, wow, wow. And you'll probably experience the same thing. So there will be some spoilers coming up, but I'm sure if you read the book, there's so much that I just couldn't get into because I'd be getting bogged down in the details. So if you saw our YouTube book review about this book, the first few minutes here will be a bit of a rehash, but we'll explain it in a different way. So maybe it can really solidify that knowledge for you. So why are some people more successful than others? Why are some groups more successful in particular fields than other groups? Society will say economic outcomes is due to genetic differences or due to exploitation and discrimination. So there are two opposing ends of the spectrum. If there's a difference in outcome, it's either because of genetics or discrimination. So just a few real world examples. If people said, hey, wow, men seem to make more money than women, there must be discrimination involved. Or wow, uh, white people make more than black people, there must be discrimination involved. Or Asian people make more than white people, there definitely isn't any discrimination involved because no one ever says that and that's quite funny but anyway this book offers a different explanation and here is a quote from the very first page or maybe the third page i don't remember the disparities can also reflect the plain fact that success in many kinds of endeavors depends on prerequisites particular to each endeavor and a relatively small difference in meeting those prerequisites can mean a very large difference in outcomes now when you're not reading that and you're just hearing it read to you maybe you didn't catch that so let's break it down to be successful in a particular endeavor for example you must have let's say five prerequisites that might, might not be rare on their own but the trick is you have to have all five of them if you're going to be successful. So one prerequisite could be as simple as the drive to success, the drive to succeed. Uh, if you don't have this, you could be the smartest man in the room, but an utter failure because you won't be driven to go through the toil and sacrifice required to succeed. And we know this. We know that some people are more driven than others. And maybe in your particular field, you've noticed that there are dumber people who are ahead of you just because you are lazy. 
And something that's always overlooked, but it's detailed in this book, is the fact that one of the prerequisites for success in a particular field is the passion to be a success in that particular field. If you have the best body on the planet, if you have the most chiseled chin, the most blue, deep eyes, or, or, oh no, he said blue eyes are beautiful. Oh my goodness, I'm just burying myself in my own grave. Uh, But in either case, if you're the most attractive dude on the planet, but you had no drive to be a model, you're not going to be successful in that field. The fact is that that is an overlooked uh, factor in determining success, and that really needs to be looked at. And it does get looked at in this book, so you should check it out. And today in society, we are under the illusion that things should be equal, that outcomes should be equal. And if they're not, that means that there is discrimination involved or exploitation involved or some sort of genetic uh, mismatch, (laughs) genetic mismatch, some sort of genetic advantage that someone has over you. Um, And that's why uh, outcomes aren't equal. But there are so many studies in this book that show that that is just plain wrong. Uh, One such study is where they did a 50-year longitudinal study on people who had an IQ of 140. Now, that's quite a high IQ. Not as high as mine, but look, uh, no one's perfect. Uh, Now, what this study shows is that there were clear differences in the outcomes of these people. And one of the biggest differentiating factors was their family background. And now this is something that people have absolutely no control over. Uh, And later on in the book, it actually talks about how the firstborn has the highest IQ and is normally the highest achiever out of the family. Uh, which is very, very interesting as well. And it just shows that, look, if you can't achieve a quality of outcomes within a single family unit, how do we expect to achieve it across all of greater society? So the basic idea behind the prerequisites is that you can gain prerequisites for success and you can lose them. uh, And sometimes it's out of your control and sometimes it's within your control. And this applies to group success as well. So there's a great example. I'll give you two examples. One of where a group gains a prerequisite and then has great outcomes and one where they lose one and have terrible outcomes. So the first one is Scotland. So here's a quote. Scotland was for centuries one of the poorest, most economically and educationally lagging nations on the outer fringes of European civilization. There was said to be no 14th century Scottish baron who could write his own name. And yet in the 18th and 19th centuries, a disproportionate number of leading intellectual figures in Britain were of Scottish ancestry. So the question is, did the world just suddenly say we're going to stop discrimination against Scottish people? Well, no, that didn't happen. Because <laughs> we're still discriminate against them. Uh, no, but that didn't happen. Uh, so the other question is, okay, did they have some sort of genetic leap? Did, was there a mutation in their brain that made them smarter? No, that didn't happen either. What happened was that they gained a prerequisite and put it into the mix and then it caused greater outcomes for them as a nation. And what that was, was a big push for them to start reading and a big push for them to learn English. So they replaced Gaelic with English, which opened a whole door of wealth to them that wasn't available before. It's only available if you can understand the English language at the time. And then that changed things for the better for them, changed the outcomes for them dramatically. Now, on the flip side is China. Now, China were technologically advanced for thousands of years. Uh, They actually had cast iron thousands of years before the Europeans. They used to explore so much better and so much more than the Europeans did. And then what happened? They realized that everyone in the outside world were actually inferior to them uh, in certain aspects. 
So then the Chinese government decided in 1433 not only to discontinue such voyages, but to forbid them. And then so as Europe uh, emerged from the Dark Ages, we absolutely overtook them technologically and in a whole bunch of other ways. And here is a quote from page 13. What China lost were not the prerequisites represented by qualities of its people, but by the wisdom of its rulers who, with one critical decision, the loss of just one prerequisite forfeited the country's preeminence in the world. So that goes back to what we said at the start. You can have four out of five prerequisites, but you need to have the whole set. That wisdom of exploration was forfeited, and therefore their successful outcomes, the outcomes that they had, uh, started to diminish when they forfeited that prerequisite. And, you know, naturally prerequisites can change over time as well and gain over time depending on how the world changes. Uh, But we can get into that a little bit later. So really this book takes empirical evidence to smash the assumption that things would be equal were it not for genetic differences or were it not for exploitation and discrimination. And he shows us where these assumptions really come from in their extreme form. So, you know, the assumption that genetics play a massive role comes from Hitler's Nazism, right? Uh, and the assumption that exploitation is a massive, has a massive hand in this comes from Marx. Um, and it's funny because they neither of these two figureheads actually tested their hypothesis. They actually just built their foundations on these assumptions, So my question is, are you looking at the world through the lens of these assumptions? Are you assuming discrimination before going through and trying to find empirical evidence to back up your claim? We haven't even talked about discrimination yet, so let's get into that. Uh, It's funny, when I say discrimination, you're not thinking about the the little D discrimination. You're not thinking about when you're choosing a movie on Netflix. You're discriminating. You're choosing what you want to see based on your own preferences. When you're, you know, looking at a painting or buying music or or swiping on Tinder, you're discriminating all the time. But let's break up what is the good type of discrimination and what is the bad type of discrimination. So he breaks it into three different types. Well, two types and one type is broken into two. So the first type is discrimination 1A, which is based on evidence about the individual. So you're discriminating based on, I don't know, their past records. So if they had a criminal record, maybe you don't hire them. Uh, discrimination 2, uh, sorry, discrimination 1B is based on group evidence. So let's say, for example, you're about to hire someone, but statistically, the group that they're a part of is known for theft. Do you want to hire that person? That's discrimination based on group evidence. This is where the lines get really blurry. blurry. Uh, and discrimination 2 which is the third kind. Discrimination too is based on uh, unsubstantiated notions or animosities. Uh, so that's the racism. That's just based off nothing. It's just it's the evil discrimination that that's how we normally use the word in today's context. And no matter what type of discrimination we're talking about, what it all boils down to is the cost of discrimination to the discriminator. And as a side note, Keep this in the back of your mind, that governments never pay the cost of bad policy decisions, unless you count voting as the cost, but they're just 
making policies based on what they think the ethos of the time is to make sure that they don't get voted out. But they don't pay a financial cost for bad decisions, whereas business owners and individuals do. And I actually think it's very, very important that we don't uh, create safety nets for people to be able to make bad decisions easily. We should make it uh, so that people actually bear the cost of bad decisions. Now, just keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this. Now, in 1970s South Africa, there were laws against hiring blacks. Okay, that was a racist law. That is the type 2 discrimination, the discrimination that we don't like. But there was actually a cost to the employer for not hiring them. They'd be less profitable. They needed people to work the farms. And if they didn't hire blacks, then they could go out of business. Uh, Here's a quote from the book. In some industries, blacks even outnumbered whites in particular job categories where it was illegal for blacks to be hired at all. Because the cost, the cost to the business owner was more. And there's a great quote. I don't think it's in this book, but it is a, a, a Thomas Sowell quote where he says, at the end of the day, the color people like most is green. So the cost really, really matters. Uh, And this example also suggests that even if they were racist, even if the business owner was racist, the cost of acting on that racism has a very, very high cost and a consequence. The problem is that the government doesn't pay that price for those policy decisions. They don't lose business for that. And in fact, if there is this kind of racist undertone in the uh, city or the district or the country, then they're more incentivized to make those policies, even if it's at the detriment to the businesses involved. Now, here's an example of when government policy, maybe they're not racist, maybe they actually want to help. And maybe, you know, we've got anti-discrimination laws. And for the most part, people think that these are a really good thing. Well, here's an example of how the government actually messes it up because they don't pay the direct cost for these policy decisions. If an employer discriminates against a group, let's say African-Americans, based on statistics. So that's discrimination 1B. They're looking at the statistics of African-Americans and seeing, look, there's a lot of theft and a lot of crime. And most of them, not most of them, but there's a high percentage of them who have criminal records. I want to mitigate that as a business owner. And then so what does he do? He gets everybody to take a criminal background check. Okay, they all have to go through background checks if they want to get a job in his uh, in his business. And the great thing about doing it that way is that he's now discriminating against the individual. He's saying, look, based on individual evidence, if you have a criminal background, then you can't have a job here. But if you don't, that's fine. It doesn't matter what group you're you're a part of. It doesn't matter what race you are. You can still have a job here because as an individual, you're fine by my set of standards for this business. And what actually happened was where businesses were conducting criminal background checks, there are actually more black employees. And then one day the government said, you know what, this is discrimination, even though they were doing it to everyone. This is discrimination. You can't do that. And they shut it down. And guess what? This lowered the black employment rate. And there are a couple of case studies in the book as well. One of them is about Pepsi, where they paid like $3 million in damages because of this. Um, and there was another one where um, this government agency uh, actually was pushing the case. And then they said, hang on, but you check your employees, you check their backgrounds. So what are you talking about? You do the same thing, which is really, really hilarious when you go into it. So the book goes example after example about how different economic outcomes are blamed on discrimination or exploitation when in fact there are other reasons involved. So another example, and I talked about this in a previous podcast, uh, is about how poor neighborhoods actually pay more for groceries. 
and they're like, well, look, uh, 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 they're predominantly black neighborhoods, therefore it's discrimination against black people. But then when you actually look at the numbers, those shops are actually less profitable, even though they're charging higher prices. And the reason is because they're charging the high price because they have to uh, bear the cost of all of the theft and all of the shoplifting that goes on in those areas. And even when they uh, charge a higher price, it's still not enough in some of these circumstances and they're less profitable than the shops uh, in richer areas. So it really comes down to the cost. What is the cost of discrimination to the discriminator? The book gives examples, including the American South after the Civil War, how there were limits on how many black people you could employ, but people just broke those laws because the competitive market meant that you needed to employ them if you wanted to compete. Uh, he goes through example during the apartheid in South Africa, same thing. People who didn't employ black people, their businesses started to fail uh, because they have to bear the cost of these decisions. Uh, but governments don't. So really, a business owner might be racist. He could be racist, but he pays the price in real dollars for that discrimination in loss of business. As you continue to move through the book, you get to a section about sorting and unsorting people. The basic principle is that people tend to be able to sort themselves out better than the government can do it for them. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the other concept is this. There is no evidence that forced diversity leads to greater economic prosperity. He gives plenty of examples uh, in the school system. Here's a quote. The educational track record of such self-sorting has been far more successful than third-party sorting. And here is an evidence-based example of that. Another quote. As of 1954, when Chief Justice Warren declared that separate schools were inherently unequal, All Black Dunbar High School sent a higher percentage of its graduates to college than any other white public school in Washington. What happened, do you think, after the government forcefully integrated these schools? I'll leave it to you to find out. Don't make the assumption, read the book. So what about forced integration in residential areas and housing and things like that? Does that lead to better outcomes? Because again, the, the premise, the, the kind of underlying thought process of these people is that everything would be equal if it weren't for discrimination or if it weren't for different genetic, uh, genetic capabilities of peoples. But mainly discrimination these days, right? Uh, okay, so you'd think then, if you're one of these people, that if we just integrated people, you know, if we got some poor families and put them in rich areas, they would somehow become better, they'd have better outcomes. Okay, so on page 71, I'm going to read a quote. A study published by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development was based on research on the same program which followed more than 4,600 very low-income families in five U.S. cities over a 10 to 15-year period to examine the short and long-term effects of moving to low-poverty neighborhoods. Okay, so let me just pause there. So they're taking poor families and putting them into upper middle class neighborhoods to see if they would have better outcomes by doing this. The conclusion was this. No discernible benefit to economic self-sufficiency, employment outcomes, and risky and criminal behavior for adults and children were observed as a result of moving. 
Similarly, moving had few positive effects on education achievement for the youth. So forcefully integrating people by a well-meaning, perhaps, government organization actually doesn't have better outcomes. Let's take it back to the premise of this book. Where do positive outcomes come from? They come from the prerequisites of groups or of individuals. And if you can recognize the prerequisite that your group or you yourself are lacking, then try and get it as best as you can because you need all of them to succeed. Perhaps this section could be called fun facts, fun with numbers, numbery, il numero funno, I don't know. So later on in the book, there's a whole section about statistics, which is actually really, really interesting, even if you don't like numbers or stats. And remember, there are no actual graphs or things like that in this book, but the studies obviously have those graphs if you want to look them up. And this section is really fascinating because it shows you how fake news media work. It shows you when they omit certain pieces of information, how it will actually skew your interpretation of the data. And it also shows how they justify their view of the world through these numbers and through these errors and omissions that they uh, present to the world. But I'll just read out a couple interesting facts, I guess, interesting little number number games. And then you can be like, hang on, actually, I never thought of that. And maybe this applies to other things as well. Okay, here's a fun fact number one. At some point between the age of 25 and 60, over three quarters of the population will find themselves in the top 20% of the income distribution. Do so you know how you, you always you hear people screaming and crying about the top 1% or the top 5% or whatever? They don't realize that at one point in time, odds are that they're going to be in that 1%. And the book goes on to talk about how these numbers are actually calculated and how if you sell a house, if you've sold, uh, sold your house, you might be in the 1% and not even realize it for that year. People just assume that, you know, you've got your top 10, top 20, top 30% and it's just a static number and that the people just stay in there their whole lives. No, people change brackets all the time. In fact, you will probably be in the 1% at one point in your life if you're listening to this. But let's move on. A great piece of knowledge in this chapter is about minimum wage laws. And again, most people assume that people on the minimum wage have always been on the minimum wage and will always be on the minimum wage. And that's there's politicians talking about how, you know, oh, people on the minimum wage have been waiting 10 years for a pay rise. And that sounds like, oh, man, that's horrible, man. If they're on the minimum wage, they probably can't even afford a, a, a good living for themselves. But that's actually not true either. Statistically, people on the minimum wage are young. You are not young your whole life. <laughs> like, do I have to say that? Okay, Peter Pan. And the other statistic is this. The average tenure of a supermarket employee, who would be on minimum wage, is 97 days. These are entry-level jobs. These are the jobs you get when you're at home. You know, while you're living with your parents, you don't have to pay rent so that you can get work experience. So then you are qualified to get the next job, which is a higher paying job. When you raise the minimum wage, it actually causes a lot of problems, which this book goes through. But you might say, hey, I've read studies. I've seen articles where it says minimum wage laws are a good thing and people don't lose their jobs like others claim that happened. Like that doesn't happen, man. Well, actually, the problem is this. And this is why it's so careful when you're reading these articles to see what they're actually admitting 
in their results and in their studies. When they're studying the effect of minimum wage laws, you can only survey the survivors. So that means that the restaurants who are struggling and then suddenly they have to pay this 15 hour or whatever it is minimum wage and can no longer afford to go out of business. So how do you survey them when they no longer exist? You can't. So you have to look at the number of how many restaurants actually close down. It's only the rich restaurants who are able to survive. And that means also that there are less jobs on the market. So be slow to claim it's exploitation. Be slow to claim it's discrimination. You have to look at the numbers and you have to look at empirical evidence. And I suggest that you look at it in terms of the prerequisites that people have for success. One of the prerequisites to have a high paying job is that you've had a low paying job. Is that not true? Anyone? I realize that you guys can't talk back to me. Well, you can in the comments, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. It's funny because most of the people who push for minimum wage laws are normally on the left end of the the spectrum. So um, they're of this whole ethos and they normally have shirts that say eat the rich and things like that. Well, there's studies cited in this book that show that, look, when the minimum wage law increases, uh, as I've just said, poor restaurants go out of business. Five-star restaurants aren't affected. So in fact, what you're doing is you're eating the poor. The struggling business owner is the one who suffers. The huge corporations are the ones who are fine. And, you know, we can get into regulation another day if you want to hear about how regulation is actually a protection for businesses. But it's just something to think about. Who bears the cost for bad decisions? If a business owner wants to pay more for his staff, he'll have more people applying for jobs. He'll have a better choice of who to hire. He, he can hire more skilled labor. If he wants to pay the minimum, he gets low-skilled uh, low labor. The government can't mandate that. Uh, you know, if he's going to pay 15, 20 bucks an hour, he's going to want someone with high skills. He's not going to want a high school dropout. It's going to have bad outcomes. So the lesson here is to be careful when you're reading stats and listen to the language of the article you're getting it from. Are they making assumptions? Are they leaving things out which are important to get the whole picture? And here's a quote from the book. Statistics matter greatly but so do the words used to describe those statistics. Unless we are prepared to stop and think beyond the words to the realities, we are all too likely to be manipulated and stampeded by a heady mixture of numbers and rhetoric. So this whole book is about battling the invincible fallacy. The invincible fallacy is this. Outcomes would be equal if there were no discrimination involved or if there were no genetic differences. This book demonstrates with empirical evidence that outcomes will not be equal if discrimination were magically abolished from existence. If you could have like a pill and it would eliminate discrimination forever, there will still be differences in outcomes. Outcomes are always greater when people are left to sort themselves out, to bear the costs of their decisions, and understand that prerequisites are required for their own success and for the success of their communities, and they should strive forward to gain a better life for themselves and their families by pursuing these prerequisites.
So what do you guys think? Did I convince you to run off to Amazon and buy his book? I'm not even an Amazon partner. Maybe I should be, but you should check out his book. Check out his other books. Uh, Economics, Facts and Fallacies is great. Uh, Black, uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals is great. Uh, and check him out on YouTube. He's got a really nice uh, like New York, Chicago uh, intellectual voice, which you can listen to for hours. He sounds like the smart gremlin from Gremlins 2, the new batch. Uh, anyway, let me know what you think in the comments. Make sure you follow us. Uh, make sure you search for us on your favorite platform, The Political Deactivist Podcast. Make sure you watch our film at anotherwaymovie.com. We actually got banned from Facebook, which I find amazing. I actually find that as a badge of honor, uh, and I wear that badge proudly. But our main page is still there, The Political Deactivist. So make sure you follow us. Make sure you send it to one of your friends who is kind of caught up in this discrimination politics at the moment. And you know what? Maybe send it to someone you don't like if you didn't like it, just to trigger them. In either case, I'll see you next time.